Hello, friends. It is time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. We are taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. And as we're in this Advent season, we love those Christmas-related questions as well. I'm Dr. Cisco Cotto, along with Dr. Mike Van Lanningham, sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. All three of us teach at Moody Bible Institute here in Chicago. Would love to study with you. Go to moody.edu in order to find out more about studying at Moody. Here's our number, 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. You can also send questions through our website, openlineradio.org. Look for the Ask Michael a Question form at openlineradio.org, and we'll get to another very popular mailbag segment coming up a little later on in the program. Keep your Bibles open. Get a second cup of coffee. I feel like, Mike, I need my third cup of coffee here, but I'm on, I'm on my way this I, morning. I, I could have had a gallon this morning, and it probably wouldn't have helped me that much, actually. So uh, I have three great kids, and they always say, Dad, we think you have a coffee problem. We, we think you do. You need to watch it. Well, Cisco, you should repent if you do. I mean, come on. I, uh, I can't say they're wrong. That's for yeah. sure. Uh, get your second cup of coffee. Uh, we're going to go right back to the phones. And by the way, earlier in the program, uh, we talked with Dr. My, uh, Michael Rydelnik live on the show. He's healing up well, doing well, getting better. And he looks forward to being back on the air with you in January. Rebecca is listening in Minnesota. Hey, Rebecca. Good morning. You are on open line. Good morning, Cisco and Michael. Thank you for taking my call. And it was wonderful to hear Dr. Rydelnik's voice this morning. Thank you so much. No, we are a family of strangers. Yes. Okay. My question is I'm finishing up my Bible reading for the year and I'm in Revelation. And in Revelation 5, 6, um, excuse me, 5, 8. No, six, five, six, excuse me, sorry. He talks about the slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And it referenced back to Isaiah. Um, sorry, I have to look at my note here because I wanted to. Uh, okay, so anyway, Isaiah 11 and it starts in chapter in verse 2, 11 to the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so it, these seven spirits, I, I don't know why I didn't really notice it until this morning. And then I was looking online and trying to figure out what these seven spirits were. And um, is the seven spirits something that we need to pay attention to? Um you know, something that we need to seek for. Um, I know I, I pray for wisdom. I pray for knowledge. I pray for counsel, et cetera, but I don't actually pray to an entity. So could you give us, give me some, shed some light on that? Well, we'll try. Uh, we really will. Rebecca, thank you for calling in and thank you for your question. So in, in John, in the a book of Revelation, um, the seven spirits are also mentioned in John chapter one, verse four where it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and so on. I don't believe that God has seven holy spirits. 
I'm pretty sure there's just one. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, uh, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, singular. And so we don't have Holy Spirits. I think what's going on in John chapter 1 is we have uh, the Holy Spirit is labeled as the seven, the one who is the seven spirits because the Holy Spirit is especially concerned with and engaged in protecting and sanctifying the seven churches that we find in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then in chapter 5, in um, the book of Revelation, I think it's the same sort of thing. Here, it's the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit, who uh, is described as the seven spirits because he is especially concerned for those seven churches. And he goes out into the world and is is uh, sovereignly engaging in things to make sure that things are going as they should for the seven churches. I think in Isaiah chapter 11, I don't think that that's talking about all those different spirits as individual Holy Spirits coming upon uh, the future Messiah. I think the spirit there sometimes uh, in the Old Testament can refer to an attitude or a certain aspect of something. And so there are aspects of wisdom and strength associated with that Messiah rather than just, you know, seven different spirits. So it seems to me that that's the way that we should understand that. I don't think it's likely that God has seven holy spirits. Now, it could be. Maybe these are angelic-type beings or just sort of spirit beings or something like that. Could be, but I doubt that that's the case. Hope that helps, Rebecca. Thanks so much for listening this morning. Uh, Terry is listening in Cleveland, WCRF. Terry, good morning. You are on Open Line. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Long listener of Moody since the early 80s, and uh, it's really a great uh, radio uh, program. And I just got a question uh, in Matthew 24 and verses 29 through 31. It seems to me talking about Jesus coming to earth to set up the millennial kingdom. And then I hear a lot of Bible teachers or whatever will go. You jump down to verse 40 when he talks about one shall be standing in the field, the other one left. One shall be standing at the other. They, a lot of teachers will refer to that as the rapture. To me, that doesn't make sense if based on the timelines. There are two different timelines. So could you elaborate on that? I think that one shall be taken from the, uh, the mill, one from the field. Wouldn't that refer to the separation from the wheat and the tares? Because they're going to be survivors in the millennial. Appreciate your, your thoughts. Yeah. Okay. So Terry, well, those are big questions, man. So let me, let me see if we can do this very, very quickly. In Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse three, the apostles or the disciples are talking with Jesus and they actually ask him two questions. Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Interestingly enough, when Jesus responds to those two questions, he deals with the second question first the signs of your coming. And we're talking about nation against nation, wars and rumors of wars. Take a look at verse 30. It says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky when all the tribes of the earth will mourn and so on. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And so the signs associated with the second coming um, are, are uh, laid out first by Jesus. But the first question the disciples asked uh, when will these things happen? That Jesus answers second, starting in verse 36. 
And the interesting thing is, is that you, you have in, uh, in verse 33, after these signs are taking place and appearing, those are going to be signs during the tribulation. It says, so you too, when you see all these things, know that he is near right at the door. So you can know when the second coming is going to be. But in verse 36, it says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. And so what's, what's going on here? What's, is there a contradiction? No, in verse 36, we're talking about the surprise beginning of the day of the Lord, which will be associated with the rapture of the church, verse 40, 41. And then what happens after the rapture of the church is the great tribulation, and that's what transpires in chapter 24, verses 4 through 35. And so, and so the start of the day of the Lord uh, occurs at the rapture of the church, but that's a surprise. Nobody's going to know that. But the second coming and this, uh, has, is preceded by signs, and that lets people know that the second coming is coming very close. You can know those things and that second coming because of those signs, but when it all starts is a complete surprise, and that's signaled by the surprise rapture of the church in verses 36 and following. Now, that's a very, believe it or not, a very short answer to a very difficult and challenging uh, question related to interpreting how do we understand Matthew 24. I just want to know the date. Can you give me the date? Yes, whatever date somebody <laughs> says, it won't be then, because Jesus says no man knows the time or the hour of that day. And so whenever somebody sets a date, it won't be then. I, I say that somewhat tongue Well, they always amend it, right? They, oh, oh they you know, to. oh, it's just a little off. It's yeah. actually 18 months from now. That's I, right. I had my, my math was wrong. <laughs> That's this. right. Well, I didn't figure in these days from the days of Noah. Or, yeah, whatever. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Terry, for calling in. The number is 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. Let's talk to Annette. She is listening in Ohio. Good morning, Annette. It's good to have you on Open Line. Go ahead. Oh, it's great to be here. First of all, a shout-out to Cleveland listeners, Alexa, Eileen, Linda, and Kenny. <laughs> you have the whole crew. Hey, do you, yeah. do you listen to uh, to Brian in the morning there on WCRF? Of course. Oh, he's of such course. a great dude. I, I love that program. He's really, really we great. We do, too. That's good. Okay. Well, my question is from John 6, and it says, uh, in 51, it says, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. Um, one more thing, uh, down further a bit, it's in 53, it says, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. The, whole, uh, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why does he talk about his body like that literally? Or is it literally? Thank you. Well, and, and of course, Annette, now Jesus was a good Jew. And the idea of eating human flesh and drinking human blood was uh, was absolutely absolutely repugnant, and so he certainly does not mean that in a literal sense. I mean, none of us could eat his flesh and drink his blood because it's not here anymore, right? It's gone. Um, our Roman Catholic friends say that the elements of the Lord's Supper turn into the body and blood of Christ in this sort of spiritual, mystical kind of way. Uh, you don't get that anywhere in Scripture, by the way. I've just got to say that. Um, and so what's going on here? Well, I, I think that this is the idea. When we eat food, 
we take the food into our bodies, we take liquid into our bodies, and our bodies need these things so that we can be sustained, we can be nourished, we can continue to live. What I want to suggest is that what Jesus is talking about here is all very figurative and very metaphorical, but his, he is saying that in the same way that we take food in our, into our bodies and, they, and it sustains us, we must uh, receive Jesus into our lives by faith, by trusting him, so that he sustains us. He gives us life in kind of the same way that food does. And if we don't have food, then we're going to die physically, food and drink. If we don't have Jesus incorporated into our life by faith, then we're going to die uh, spiritually, um, eternally. And so we must have him. We must receive him. We must take him into our lives. And that happens as we trust him. He comes to dwell within us. It seems to me that that's the best way to understand John chapter 6. John especially, another thing just about the overall gospel of John is he uses all of these metaphors, all these word pictures, uh, the the I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the gate for the sheep, um, you know, I, I, I am the true vine. You know, I, I am the door, 15. I yes. am the shepherd, yeah. I am you know, lots of things. And in uh, John 15, to your point, where he, he talks about the fact that uh, that he is the vine and we are the branches, Right now, he's not literally a vine. We're not literally branches. He's talking about the fact that as we abide in him or remain in him, as we stay connected to him, we are spiritually nourished and we are equipped to be able to produce the fruit of the Christian life, uh, and and especially when it comes to reaching others with the gospel and, and having God use us in that way. Uh, he's talking about what we're able to do because we are connected to God. He's not saying we, we literally are uh, you know, the branches of a grapevine. Um, and yet, uh, to, to your question, and I appreciate it, Annette, there's many people who, who face challenges there because they think that, well, he, he's telling us to literally do this. Right. And, but it's not literal. Yeah. It, it, as, as Cisco pointed out, you know, Jesus is the vine and we must abide in him. And I think we have a similar, uh, sort of a different aspect of, of the same idea that, if, that we have to av- abide in the vine as branches in order to be nourished. So also we have to have him in our lives in order to have life, eternal life. And so uh, it's essential that we would do that. I just want to ask, want to make sure that our listeners understand that you don't get right with God by doing all kinds of wonderful things. You should do wonderful things. But we become right with God by trusting in Jesus alone to make us right with him. And once you are right with God, how can you be assured that you can remain in Him? We'll get a question about that. Coming up next on Open Line, 877-548-3675. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. People often wonder, what's Hanukkah all about? So with Hanukkah coming up in December, Chosen People Ministries wants to help Open Line listeners by offering a free booklet called The Gospel According to Hanukkah. Chosen People Ministries reaches Jewish people around the world with the good news of Jesus the Messiah. The Gospel According to Hanukkah explains the ancient origins of this holiday, the way it's celebrated today, and how it relates to our own faith in Jesus, the light of the world. For a free copy of The Gospel According to Hanukkah, just go to openlineradio.org. Scroll down, and you'll see a link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, and you'll be able to sign up for your very own copy of The Gospel According to Hanukkah.
This is Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Cisco Cotto, and Michael Van Lanningham sitting in for Dr. Rydelnik this morning. Here's our number, 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. Always enjoy your calls and your questions. Let's get to another one. Here is Diane calling us from Peoria, Illinois. Diane, good morning. Thanks for listening. You're on Open Line. Thank you for taking my call. My question is, how can we be assured of going to heaven when in the Bible it says it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a person to go to heaven? Diane, you know what? I have great news for you. In, in that passage, I'm one of, and one of the passages that's at is in uh, Matthew chapter 19, um, it's it's when Jesus interacts with the which what we call the rich young ruler, and and Jesus has a, again a very interesting interaction with him starting at verse sixteen and following. But then in verse twenty three, Jesus says to his disciples, "Truly I say to you, it, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God." And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And let's just stop there for a second. And they would say that because if a person was rich in their day, they just assumed that if a person's rich, it's because they in some ways pleased God, because God's not going to enrich somebody who's, who he doesn't approve of. And so it was just assumed that a rich person uh, is really sanctified, um, and so they asked, then who can be saved? And then Jesus says something very encouraging. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, how any of us gets into heaven is because God does this for us. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, in chapter, chapter 19, verse 17, when the young ruler asks, what, what things must I do to obtain eternal life? He said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And he's referring to God, Jesus is. Well, in other words, even in verse 17 in this passage, it's God who assures us and who actually enables us and empowers us and takes us to the place of eternal life. It's not something that we can manufacture on our own. So it is a struggle. The Christian life is, it is hard, and we all feel that. But praise God in the final analysis, he gets us there because he's promised to do so. Yeah, there's so many people, uh, myself included at different points in my life, that have wrestled with this. Can it really be true? Can, can I really uh, uh, be, be assured of my, my permanence with God? But when we do that, part of what's going on is that we, even if we wouldn't articulate it this way, even if we wouldn't say it this way, we're somehow relying on ourselves. We're we're somehow saying, I have to do something. I have to earn this. I have to maintain this. And that's why we probably all need a reminder that, no, that's not at all what's going on. It's the Lord who's doing this. With with humankind, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Entering the kingdom's impossible if it's left up to us. But God does it, and it's a glorious thing. Yeah. Annette, write down uh, this verse, and thank you, uh, Annette. That was the previous caller. Diane. Oh, I'm sorry. Write yes. this down. I'm the one who said Diane. I apologize, Diane. Write this down. John 10, 27 and 28. John 10, 27 and 28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish ever no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
no one and nothing can take you away from this relationship that you have with Jesus. You are assured. When it comes to the riches, yes, there are things that compete for our affections in the world. Absolutely. Uh, there, there are those idols that we wrestle with. And yet for those who are in Christ, there is nothing and no one that can remove you from his, praise, his relationship. Praise the Lord. Oh, amen. Amen. Thank you, Diane. Thanks for listening. Hope that helped. Let's go to Janice in Chicago, listening on WMBI. Janice, good morning. You are on Open Line. Good morning, and thank you so much. I have two short questions. I hope you can give me some numbers. Uh, how many precise prophecies were fulfilled the day Jesus was born? 3,209. Oh, wait. No, no wait a minute. That no, could, could that... be. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, now now you're asking a very narrow question, Janice. You know, how many, how many uh, prophecies were filled, fulfilled the day Jesus was born? Well, if, I mean, we're talking about uh, Isaiah chapter, chapter 7. Uh, there's one about the virgin birth. I would I would say if we want to think a little more broadly as it related to prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, Josh McDowell in his uh, book, either evidence that demands a verdict or more evidence that demands a verdict, and I don't even know if those are still in print. These are the books I had when I was in college that I loved and helped me enormously. He said there were about 300 um, Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ, his life, his virgin birth, his, his death, his resurrection, um, all of those things. And so it, I don't know that it's 300, but I'm sure there's a whole lot. As far as the rapture is concerned, uh, nothing else has to be fulfilled before the rapture takes place, but there are numerous promises. I think John 14, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 15, where, where those all talk about the rapture of the church. Uh, I, and so um, those are all referring to the same thing. So I would say uh, before the rapture, only one thing needs to take place, and that is the actual rapture taking place, and that that will be the fulfillment of those promises. And that's a, a reason to keep looking to the heavens. It could happen at any moment, which is reassuring, I think, to many people in various situations. And Paul intended it to be a comfort to the people in Thessalonica, comfort with comfort each other with these words. Yeah. Thanks, Janice, so much for listening and for calling in. Let's get to Linda calling in Pennsylvania. Linda, good morning, listening on WJCS. You are on open line. Go ahead, Linda. Good morning. I have a question about prevailing prayer, that if we pray about a an issue and we take it to the foot of the cross, do we leave it there and then just believe that it's going to happen, or do we keep on praying and praying and praying? I want your, you know, your opinion about prevailing prayer. And my other question is, if we're called to pray continuously and all day long, every time someone comes or something comes to my mind as I'm going through my day, must I constantly say, in Jesus' name, to end my prayer? Well, it's it's um, never wrong to conclude a prayer by saying in Jesus' name. I think I think the idea of praying in Jesus' name, when Jesus says, you know, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. I think to do the to do something in the name of a person means based upon everything they are, all they believe, all they've taught, everything they value, and so our prayers um, may be concluded 
with saying in Jesus name but the better idea is is that when we pray we pray in keeping with what we know to be uh, what Jesus himself taught and values so I, I think it's important to do that as far as prevailing prayer I don't think we need to pray just one time and trust God for it I think we can pray over and over again I think in Luke chapter 18 you've got a parable of of a poor woman who came to a judge who was kind of a rascal and she kept pestering him over and over again and What's, what's encouraged there is continual prayer, repeated prayer, uh, praying all times without ceasing in First Thessalonians chapter 5. So we should be doing that all the time. And it's not that one prayer uh, sort of isn't enough. We want to make sure that it's not, if I don't pray 17 times, God is not going to respond in this way. Right. It, it's not that, right? That's right. And maybe the best thing in prayer is that we are opening ourselves up to God. We're expressing our dependence upon Him. And, and that might be among the most valuable aspects of prayer, not just getting our prayers answered. Yeah, especially for those loved ones who do not know the Lord. Uh, I have many in, uh, in my family, and I just pray regularly, Lord, unveil their eyes, lead them to Jesus, and I'll pray that every day that I am alive. Here's our number, 877-548-3675. The mailbag is coming up next. Open line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Cisco Cotto, and Michael Van Lanningham sitting in. Each week on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called a Bible study moment where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a kitchen table partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. We're so glad that FEBC partners with Open Line with Dr. Michael Radelnik, bringing the FEBC mailbag every week. Learn how Far East Broadcasting Company is taking Christ to the world at febc.org. On their weekly podcast, Until All Have Heard with Ed Cannon, you'll hear stories of lives changed by Messiah all across the globe. Again, you can hear the podcast when you visit febc.org. That's febc.org. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. He is still out on the mend after some surgery, but doing really well. We heard from him earlier in the program. Looking forward to getting Dr. Michael Rydelnik back in January. Right now, today, you have Dr. Cisco Cotto and Dr. Michael Van Lanningham. We, along with Dr. Rydelnik, teach at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Would love to study with you. Go to the website, moody.edu. That's moody.edu to find out more about the many education options that Moody offers. It is the mailbag segment. You send in those questions via openlineradio.org. Openlineradio.org. You just click on Ask Michael a Question, and that's how those questions get to us. We're going to answer several of these now, and then we are going to get back to your calls. Here is the number. Keep those calls coming in. 877-548-3675. 877-548-3675. And we'll get to your calls after we answer a few of these mailbag questions. Producer Trisha McMillan is back with us. She is the keeper of the mailbag. Trish, 
Uh, yeah. so, some people have been writing in even during the program. They have. Which is yeah. great. We yeah. love that. We, we love that. And we will answer them if we can. So please <laughs> right. keep those coming in as well. Yes, several of them have been responding to different answers you guys have given. And so the first question is from Kevin, who says, The psalmist says, My sins are removed far from me as far as the east is from the west. The author of Hebrews says, God forgives my wickedness and will remember my sin no more. Why then at the judgment will I give an account of everything I have ever done? Or does this account not include my sin since it cannot be remembered? So we had talked earlier in the program about giving an account and the Bama seat, it was called. Right. Because there are two judgments. There's the Great White Throne Judgment and the Bama Seat. There's right? actually seven judgments in seven. Scripture, but oh, we won't go goodness. in. We won't go into all of those. <laughs> A okay, detailed so, account right now. Yeah, of those. yeah, yeah. No. Uh, so, I mean, I understand. I understand the tension here that Kevin's feeling. You know, on the one on the one hand, we are forgiven of our sins. God doesn't God doesn't hold them against us. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. But you also have these verses, though, in the New Testament. And let me just read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 again. We must, notice, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if, now Kevin, I just want to say um, we have verses like that here, uh, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans 14. I think 1 Corinthians 3 carries the same idea, though it doesn't mention the word bema. And so what are we supposed to do? Just dismiss those and say, well, those don't mean anything or, or assign them to something different that we get, we get evaluated in this life or something by other Christians? No, that's not it. And so what we're talking about is that God doesn't hold our sins against us in terms of an, an eternal sort of way. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. But that doesn't mean that for a saved person that there is no evaluation um, of how we lived our lives. And so we will give an evaluation. Notice also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage... And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, they say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And so we, we know that when we die, we go into the presence of the Lord. But there's also an evaluation somewhere in here, maybe at the rapture of the church, that all of us will go through. Yeah, I want to say a couple things about, about this, beginning with the idea of our sin and feeling the weight of our sin. I, uh, as I get older, and, and I'm only in my 40s. I'm not old. My children think I'm old. There are others here in the studio who are old. So we've got that covered. You keep telling my kids, wait till you're in your 40s. It's not old. Uh, and, and yet the more I walk with Christ, the more I feel the weight of my sin, the more I understand the depths of my sin, and, and when we do that, as we mature in our walk with Christ, that's not designed by God to just to keep us down, to keep us questioning, are we really saved, to, to make us, uh, you know, sort of just be in the dumps all the time. Instead, it is used by God to, to cause us in new and fresh and more powerful ways to praise Him and glorify Him because of His grace, because of His forgiveness. That, that we say, oh, yeah, that's sin too, and, and that's sin too. Yes, Jesus died for all of that sin. And I, I guess the second thing, 
we we don't. We talked earlier in the program. We don't really know what it's going to look like to give an account. You know, we don't know. Is there going to be a big flat screen up there or something? And, and our life is going to play and we're going to see all of those. I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But the the image that I have, this is the Cisco image. This is not, you know, I can't point to a chapter and verse. But I imagine standing before the Lord, giving an account yeah, my sin is laid bare, and yet in that moment, at least in my heart, is, oh, you forgave that one too? That, that sin is washed away too? Wow. You're not holding that against me anymore either? And just over and over and over again, in order to to feel the overwhelming thing that Christ did for us on the cross. Uh, it, it, it is not God beating his people down, you know, and, and say, oh, and you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. It's Think of the glory. Feel the glory of what Jesus Christ That's has a great done point. for us. That's a great point. Maybe yeah. it's maybe this valuation is so that God's glory, uh, God's grace, is more and more glorified. Yeah, I, I died for that one too. Yeah, and I, you know, I died for that That's one great. too. You know, it's uh, it's just wonderful. Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah. Uh, next question is from Wes. Uh, listens to WCRF in Ohio. On our Moody station, several times I've heard a speaker say, and a young maid shall have a child, and I assume this is quoting Isaiah seven fourteen. Why do some versions refer to a young maid instead of a virgin? So there's all kinds of controversy about the Hebrew word Alma there. And um, it, it's it's argued that Alma doesn't actually refer to a a woman who is uh, who has no sexual experience, if I can put it that way. Um, there, there are people who say, well, Alma means a young woman of marriageable age who probably is actually married and engaging in uh, the, the act of marriage and is probably pregnant at this moment. And you're thinking, oh, wait, wait, there are people who actually say that's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7. The problem is in Isaiah chapter 7, um, Isaiah says to the king, you know, ask for a sign. Something as high as heaven, you know, something spectacular, something amazing. Well, Alma, on that basis alone, almost certainly refers to a virgin. Because what's extraordinary about a young woman of marriageable age who's probably married and engaging in sexual relations, becoming pregnant? What's miraculous about that? But And so what, what happens here is that um, Isaiah actually gives, um, encourages uh, Ahaz to to ask for an amazing miracle. Well, it would be that a woman is um, is not sexually active, who's going to um, actually have a child. And then when you come to the New Testament, you have Parthenos that's used um, virtually all the time, used in the Greek language for somebody who has not had any sexual relations whatsoever. Seems to me that's a better way to to look at it. I think you touched on this. the 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 Hebrew is. Um, a, a young woman, marriageable age, you know, someone who could be married but isn't married, is it implied then that she has not been intimate? That, that Because culturally that would have been something that uh, we, we can say would have been frowned upon. And there are, there are places in the Old Testament where Alma actually refers very clearly to somebody who is not sexually experienced at all. And I think that that's a better understanding here. Yeah, okay, good. so the virgin would be the better translation then yeah. for the Isaiah seven fourteen rather than a young maiden. I believe so, and and it, pardon me for saying it this way, but 
Uh, Riddellink does a great job with that in the Isaiah commentary, in the Moody Bible commentary. He goes into all of the issues associated with that and does a wonderful job of arguing for it being best understood as a virgin will conceive. For those who missed that, it's the Moody Bible commentary (laughs) available wherever great books are sold. Which you can say because you're not in it. I can say that, and I love it. I've been a pastor for a long, long time. Now I teach here at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. The Moody Bible Commentary is on my desk in my office. I consult it all the time. I can say that because I had zero to do with it. You know, I can say it totally, totally clear. Uh, it is just a really, really great resource, and so I, I use it all the time. I give it away as as a gift all the and, time. It's really good. And please forgive me for having done these shameless commercials about it, but it, but it, there's some good stuff in it. It's going to be helpful if people want to get it. You yeah, know, like and if that. you want to see a sample of that, since you're mentioning it, we don't often mention this on the air, but uh, there's a sample on our website, openlineradio.org. If you scroll down to the bottom, um, there is a sample of, and I always get the books wrong. The Daniel it's Commentary Daniel by Michael Rydelnik and, and the Romans, Romans Commentary by me. Yes, and so you can get, um, it is both books complete, and so if you want to see that, or even if you're studying either of those two books great resource but you can see a good sample of that um at openlineradio.org scroll down to the bottom you'll see a little moody bible commentary button and you can click on that and find that so let's do one more try and squeeze this one in it's rick in tennessee listen to wmbw is there anywhere in scripture that says who can perform baptisms their church is currently without a pastor and um one of their um People in their congregation has approached them to ask if he can perform the baptisms of his grandchildren who will be visiting uh, during Christmas. The short answer is no. And please, Mike V, correct me. I don't want to be heretical here on Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I appreciate that. Uh, That's that's my only goal whenever I come in here. It's my only goal. Don't be heretical. Don't be heretical. If so, that's a win. Um, So uh, the, the short answer is no. Uh, And yet this has been something that pastors and theologians have wrestled with for 2,000 years now. Uh, Should only pastors or elders be the ones who are actually doing the baptism, actually doing the baptizing? Uh, Can it be friends? Can it be family members? Uh, If it's some sort of a, a, a missionary situation and you have been led to Christ by that person, should they be the one to baptize you? Um, I want to handle this sensitively because some of the concerns over who baptizes whom are we, we don't want it just to be sentimental. We don't want the baptism service to be all about the relationship between the people. We want it to be something taken seriously. We want it to honor the Lord. We want it to be about uh, the obedience of the person being baptized to Christ's command to be baptized. Uh, We want Christ to be exalted during this baptism ceremony. And so we don't want it to be about, uh, oh, oh, Johnny's grandpa led him to Christ and and they love each other. And, and, And so people are more focused on that relationship than they are about the relationship that this person has with Jesus Christ. Uh, I personally think that there are ways that it can be done in which Christ is still exalted, Christ is still the focus, and yet it is not an elder or a pastor who is doing the baptizing. Uh, And yet I would say, 
handle it sensitively, be serious about this, uh, don't allow it to become uh, something that's just like a, a, you know someone saying something at a family birthday party or something like that. Uh, take it very, very seriously, and yet I, I don't think that we can in a hard and fast way say it must be an elder. Um, and uh, Mike, I'm, I'm going to lean on you now to uh, tell, tell me about my heresy. Here. Well, let me just say, Cisco, I agree 100% with everything you just said. How's yes. that? Yes. How's that? <laughs> That's a win. That's a win. Yes. Yeah, because there's, there's this this wrestling that happens. over. Yeah. I, I don't want to do it wrong. We're afraid. We don't want to do it wrong. Uh, and in this case, take it seriously. Don't 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 make this something that is uh, that is sort of silly or something. Uh, and yet, I don't believe it has to be a, a pastor and elder. And I say that because I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. And Cisco's a pastor and an elder, and I'm a pastor and an elder, and yet we're saying those things. So yeah, yeah. yeah. We've done lots that, of baptisms. Thanks for that question, yeah. Rick. Not not as many baptisms as I'd like. Can I say mm-hmm. that? I, I want them lined out the door. That's what I want. Please, <laughs> yeah. Lord, please. Uh, always love taking your questions, whether it is at openlineradio.org, in the mailbag, or via phone, 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. More of those phone calls to come. Open line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Cisco Cotto, and Michael Van Lanningham sitting in today. More of your calls next. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says Paul has written some things that are hard to understand. That's why Alan Johnson's book, Romans, Everyday Bible Commentary, is so helpful. It provides clear explanations that will enhance our understanding of this important letter, and it offers practical application for our own lives, too. When you give a gift of any size to OpenLine, I'll send you a copy of Romans, Everyday Bible Commentary, just to say thank you. Call 888-644-7122 or visit OpenLineRadio.org. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I'm Dr. Cisco Cotto, filling in along with Dr. Michael Van Lanningham. We teach along with Dr. Rydelnik at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So glad to be sitting in for Dr. Rydelnik. He is healing up after some surgery, doing very well, and he will be back on the program in January. And he's really looking forward to taking more of your calls at 877-548-3675. Let's go back to the phones. Nettie is listening in Georgia. Good morning, Nettie, WGNN. Thanks for listening. Uh, What's your question? My question is, did Mary and Joseph know that the shepherds were coming? And how do you think they responded when they got there? Well, uh, Nettie, we don't know that they knew that they were coming. My guess is is that it was probably a surprise to Mary and Joseph. Um, Don't know that. There was any advance notice given to them? Um, maybe sitting they, there, and some guys knocked on the door, or they got a text message. Right. Yeah, you know, right. maybe they got a text that these guys are coming. I'm sorry, I don't mean to. Be Is now them. a good time? Yeah, yeah. Can we visit now? Um, so so uh, I would I would guess that probably it was a surprise, and yet it's very interesting. In chapter two, verse nineteen, we do have a reaction. It says, "But Mary treasured all these things." pondering them in her heart and says then the shepherds went back glorifying and praising god for all they'd heard and seen just as it had been told them and so the reaction uh after they were there and upon their departure was for mary to ponder all of this and to to try to think it through but uh we don't have any indication that 
they were given a heads up that these guys were coming to see them. And right before that, uh, the the shepherds relay what happened to Mary and Joseph. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said. There to you them. go. And how wouldn't they be? Like just just imagine right. that for a moment. You've just had this miraculous child. Uh, you, you're, you're swaddling this child. You're amazed at what's going on. And then these shepherds show up and they go, yeah, some angels told us to come here. Some angels said this baby had been born. Uh, and then they show up on the scene. And I, yeah, I, I don't know how you wouldn't be amazed by that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nettie, for listening uh, and calling in. Let's go to Nate. Nate is listening in Indianapolis. Uh, Nate is listening on WGNR. Good morning. Thanks so much. Uh, you are on Open Line. Good morning. Um, my question is, um, I was reading, uh, I think it's Matthew, and Jesus was um, talking to the disciples, and he um, said to the disciples, um, it would have been better for the guy who betrayed him not to even been born. And I was wondering, like, what did he mean by that? Well, simply that, that, um, that, Judas was going to be facing some um, horrendous judgment for his role in the betrayal of Jesus. And, and uh, if he had never been born, then he wouldn't face the judgment. But he had been born, and it was God's sovereign plan that he would be. Uh, and um, Judas acts under God's sovereign providential plan, and yet Judas uses his own free will to choose to sin here by betraying Jesus. And so uh, both things are in effect, but uh, it's Judas who is accountable to God for this horrible sin. And I, I, I kind of think that the betrayal of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus was probably the worst sin that's ever been committed, worse than the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, worse than anything else, just because you've got the Son of God incarnate perfectly innocent in all regards, being crucified. Uh, what a horrendous thing. So so Judas had a significant role in that, and he's going to be held accountable by God for that, and it won't be a happy day for him when that judgment has come his way, as it already has, no doubt. Um, think about uh, from that moment forward, he betrays Christ and uh, just the just the weight of everything that happened there. You have the way that he died, and it's just awful. I think there may be a little hyperbole there. I'm thinking in the book of Job, Job is suffering, and he says, it'd be better if I hadn't even been born, sort of a thing. You know, it's, it's just this, sure. man, what I'm going through is awful, and what Judas is going to do and did was awful. Uh, that may be some of it as well. Mike V., I always love being on the radio with you. What a pleasure, Cisco, yes. um, to be with a friend and to be able to do this. It's wonderful. It's really great. Thanks, friends, so much for listening to another Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I'm Cisco Cotto. That's Michael Van Lanningham. You can go to openlineradio.org for more episodes. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks, Trish, Bob, and Anthony for all of your help behind the scenes today.